And welcome once again to EWTN's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author, new to our program, Father Sebastian Walsh O'Pram. Three books, Heart of the Gospel, also Always a Catholic, and Secrets from Heaven, all published by our good friends over at Catholic Answers, all available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com, all things Catholic. It's great to meet you, Father. Really great to meet you, too, Doug. Thank so, you so much. So, O'Pram, what, what, that's a religious <laughs> it order. Is. What, what is it? Explain. Yeah, so we're more commonly known as the Norbertines because... Okay. Um, we're founded by St. Norbert, Christmas Day 1121, so we just celebrated 900 years as an order, believe it or not. And uh, that O Prem is Latin for Ordo Premonstratensis, which is the Order of Premontre. Mm -hmm. So Premontre is a tiny little valley in the northeastern tip of France, and that is where the first abbey of our community was founded. So that's why we got that initial O Prem. Okay. But our purpose in being founded was it was part of the Gregorian reform movement, and we were founded to reform the clerical life. Just as St. Bernard of Clairvaux um, spearheaded the reform of the religious life, St. Norbert spearheaded the reform of the clerical life, especially the life of priests. So that was a reason for our order. Okay, Heart of the Gospel, subtitled How the Beatitudes Show Us God's Plan for Happiness. In the beginning of, of the book, uh, in the introduction, you talk about the fact that most people you know, they kind of heard Beatitudes when the catechism, they don't re yeah. remember them anymore. You say, my hope is that you, as you read this book, you'll see how the Beatitudes were at the very heart of the teaching of Jesus Christ. And they're not just memorization exercise, but a way of life to be lived. So it's central, it's representative of everything. Is it all encapsulating? Yeah, that's a really good question. It certainly does encapsulate the, the whole of the moral teaching of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you could say, for example, the doctrinal teaching like the Trinity and the Incarnation are all there, but I, the way I put it is the Beatitudes are as important and central to the teaching of Jesus as the Ten Commandments are to the teaching of Moses. Mm -hmm. And to, to, to you know, draw that point um, or, or to, to mm -hmm. drive that point home, mm -hmm. St. Matthew clearly makes an allusion to Moses going up the mountain in Exodus and he says that Jesus went up the mountain. It's a, it's a direct quote from, from Exodus mm -hmm. about Jesus going up and delivering the eight Beatitudes just as Moses delivered the Ten Commandments. Huh? So the, the, the whole moral teaching of Jesus is summarized, is encapsulated as in a seed in these okay. eight Beatitudes. You say becoming and being a Christian is simply living out the Beatitudes more and more fully. Now, it, you talk about the attitude having to do with happiness, connection to blessedness. A lot of people think, well, the Beatitudes basically you boil them down. It means be nice to everybody. <laughs> is there, there more to it? Yeah, right. The, 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 the familiar expression is the be happy attitudes, right? right as right. people will often say, no, the Beatitudes are a supernatural way of living. You know, the, the term that's used in the Greek is makarioi, and that word is used to describe the blessedness of Jesus in heaven and the blessedness of God. So we're talking about a divine happiness here that the Beatitudes are leading us to. And the way we know that it's not just some sort of emotional satisfaction is look at them. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who are persecuted. This is a life which is above the human. It's a divine life, it's a properly divine life. 
and it's living life at its highest possible summit mm -hmm. in this life and only to be completely fulfilled in the life to come. You say sometimes we can lose sight of this fundamental fact, uh, talking about transcendent happiness being our goal. Mm. Uh, our search for happiness is like the air we breathe, we're unconsciously looking for it in every decision we make, and we can get so preoccupied with the particular things we think that'll make us happy. Mm. And, and, and you kind of have this little logistic uh, uh, logic thing that you do with, uh, yeah, a with student students, running yeah. through, kind of going through all sure. the things you're supposed to, what do you want, good grades, you know, why, well, good college, good job, lots of money, I want to be happy. Yeah. But your final question is, what is happiness? That's exactly right. right, right. You know, if, if you're living your life and you don't know the answer to that question, you know, I, I compare it to men, it's like, I'm going to Kalamazoo, but I have no idea where it is on a map. I'm just going to start driving randomly. Mm. What are your chances of getting there, right? Mm. Jesus alone is in a unique position to tell us where true happiness is found. He's the only one who's seen the Father. He's the only one who's come down from heaven. So he's the only one who can tell us where to find true happiness. And he tells us that we find it in places where we don't expect to look. Mm -hmm. I often say the Beatitudes are counterintuitive. Right. The human heart works sometimes the opposite way you expect it to work. People are looking for power, they're looking for money, they're looking for pleasure, and what do they find? Misery. So what does that have to do with Greek sailors? <laughs> so, in my book, mm -hmm. I have a great story. I read this many years ago, maybe 15 years ago. It was an article about this device that they, they brought up from a shipwreck. The, the shipwreck was from a, a, a Greek frigate from the first century BC. And among the devices they brought up, the treasures they brought up, was a shoebox-sized device. Mm -hmm. And it was lots of gears and everything, but they could not figure out, this was in about the year 1900 this, this uh, shipwreck was discovered. But they could not figure out what it did. Mm -hmm. Well, 100 years later, they developed the x-ray technology to be able to go through and literally x-ray it, you know, layer by layer. They rebuilt the whole thing. It was a sophisticated astronomical clock, mm -hmm. the likes of which we had not seen in the West again until the 15th century. And it could predict eclipses, the position of the planets, everything. Mm -hmm. But it had been so, um, you know, corrupted by rust, brine, and all the other things that they had no way of figuring out how it worked. And so in some way, there's an analogy there. I thought that's a perfect metaphor. At the dawn of our race, there was a shipwreck, mm -hmm. a shipwreck of original sin. And among the things that went down with the ship was the human heart. Mm -hmm. The prophet Jeremiah says, more tortuous than all else is the human heart, beyond remedy, who can understand it? I alone probe the mind and test the heart, says the Lord. Mm -hmm. So God alone can tell us how the, the heart works. And, and just like those scientists couldn't figure out how that device worked without help, so also we can't figure out how our hearts work without help. Now, there's a question, how many Beatitudes are there? Are mm. there eight or nine? Or, yeah. And are there other Beatitudes in other yes. places of the Gospel? Yeah, so, so if you look at the, first of all, there's a question, are there four or are there eight? Because mm. Luke's Gospel has four. Mm. Matthew's Gospel has eight or nine because the last Beatitude, he says it twice, right? Mm. Well, the general consensus is that Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is the more detailed account, and so the complete list of the Beatitudes is found in Matthew, mm. okay? And, and in Matthew's Beatitude, that, um, that last Beatitude, what we call the Eighth Beatitude, is kind of emphasized, so you get a double dose of blessing, so to speak, blessed are the, those who are persecuted. And um, so traditionally the church has always taught there are eight Beatitudes. But there are Beatitudes found in other places in Scripture, mm -hmm. 
um, about 50, a little over 50 times in the New Testament and a little over 50 times in the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament, that same word makarioi is used. St. Thomas says, in all those other Beatitudes, they all reduce back to one of those eight listed by Matthew. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're all some version of one of those eight. So when you asked before, right. is the whole doctrine of Christ contained there? Yes. All the ways in which we can find happiness, the whole mm -hmm. of moral doctrine is about happiness, blessedness of heaven, and all the ways we can find it are found somehow in one of those eight Beatitudes. Well, it's interesting too, because you have in here the listing of the eight, like the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and you talk about those things, in, in a sense, what we have to go through, yes. but there's a reward for each one of those. Theirs yes. is the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted, they will inherit the land. Because a lot of times, people feel, from a Christian perspective, it always seems like, yes. why do we have such tough things to go through <laughs> if when Jesus is talking about happiness in heaven? Yes, yeah. So, one of the questions that I ask in my book is, are the Beatitudes about present happiness or future happiness? Mm -hmm. And really the key to understanding the Beatitudes is the theological virtue of hope. Um, it's interesting because the first and the last Beatitude is put in the present tense. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, okay? But the intermediate ones, the intermediate six are all, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted and so forth. It's a future tense. I see. Okay. So it's both future and present. But hope has this amazing power. It can make future joys present. Mm -hmm. A simple example. Let's say a, a, a guy, back in California, we had this $2 billion lottery. Do you know about that? It was a few years ago, a few yeah, months right, ago. Right, right. A guy buys a lottery ticket. He looks at the numbers. They all come up on the screen. And he doesn't have a red cent in his hand, but he jumps for joy because he's got the ticket. Mm -hmm. And why is he so happy, even though he doesn't have any money? Because he has hope. Mm -hmm. He has hope in the promise of the state of California <laughs> and the fact that he's got this ticket in his hand. Our hope is not in the state of California. Thank goodness. It's in Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's in Jesus Christ. And the, he doesn't, and the, he won't default. That's exactly right, <laughs> exactly. And not only that, but, but the, the, the good that we're promised is not $2 billion. Mm -hmm. It's God's own happiness. So that means objectively, every Christian should be running around more excited, more happy than the guy who won a huge lottery. Right. But why aren't we? It's because our hope is weak. You know, hope makes future joys present. Right. Well, you say here, who are the poor in spirit? And, and I focused on that because that's one of the ones that's the most popular one yeah, you hear sure. about, obviously. Yeah. We all know what it means to be a poor person, etc. So, what, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And you say it is someone who lives in his spiritual life the way a man who is poor in body lives in his physical life, kind yeah. of a daily kind of situation. The physically poor does not have time for unnecessary distractions. The spiritually poor man sees that he must always attend to the necessities of the spiritual life, work for mercy, confession uh, of Prayer, sins, yeah. and, and does not give into unnecessary distractions. Yeah, that's but right. But is it possible to be poor and not poor in spirit? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's, I think, why St. Matthew adds that. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to say something interesting about the difference, because St. Luke just says, blessed are you poor. Right, you point that out, right. And St. Matthew said, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's two differences there. Matthew adds that qualifier in spirit, but Luke says, blessed are you. And I have a theory about that. St. Thomas, St. Augustine, they say that 
St. Luke is reporting the sermon that was given to the crowds. Mm -hmm. Matthew is reporting the sermon that was given to the disciples on the top of the mountain as opposed to on the plain. Those crowds had been following Jesus for three days already. Jesus knew that they were already poor in spirit. Mm -hmm. So he didn't have to add that part. They were willing to go without food, without drink for three days just to listen to the Word of God. Mm -hmm. So they had already proved by their actions that they were truly poor in spirit. So Jesus was trying to impress that upon them. But the truth of the matter is you can be poor and greedy. And sadly, that's the case. It's it's sad when you're poor and greedy because then you don't have any benefits. Right, absolutely. You talk about the three dangers of wealth in this section. Scripture reveals three distinct dangers. Um, One, you talk about the idea, the first danger is we love wealth so much that we're willing to do injustice to others. The second is that we love our wealth so much that we're willing to part with it even when someone is in need. And the third, by far the most subtle and far-reaching, you say, is using our wealth as a substitute for God's providence. Explain that one. Absolutely. So most of the people who I know who are good Catholics um, want to be wealthy, even though they're good Catholics. Mm -hmm. And I say, you know, Jesus said, um, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Mm -hmm. You would think if he said that about anything else, People, every Christian would avoid that thing like, like the plague. But as long as it's money he's talking about, you always get all these excuses, you know. Mm-hmm. So what happens there? What happens is that we think that God is not going to take care of us and give us the things we really need for our salvation in this life. And as a consequence, we try to provide for ourselves. Jesus tells a parable about that in Luke chapter 12. He talks about a man whose um, land produced an abundance of fruit. And he said, what shall I do? I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns, right? right? And then I'll say to myself, self, you have many things laid up for years to come, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. And then the parable ends, you fool. This night they will require your life of you. And whose will those things be? Thus shall it be for those who are not rich toward God. Mm -hmm. He's not accused of being greedy. He's not accused of stealing. He's not accused of not helping the poor. He's accused of not being rich toward God. Mm -hmm. As a father, a spiritual father, I think to myself, what a joy it is when my spiritual children Mm -hmm. trust me to care for their needs. But when a child doesn't trust his father, it it must cause Mm -hmm. great pain to the heart of a father. So let me ask you, since you said that, so that rich man with the the bursting barns, uh, what should he have done? Yeah, in a case like that, I think to myself, Probably the fact that he'd been blessed by all that, that abundance, he probably should have distributed that to the poor. Okay. Even though there were no poor people around, he, he should have done something to give it away. To help others to in be, some way. Yeah, to help others in some way. And when you're blessed with that kind of an abundance, mm-hmm. it seems to me that the only real reason for that is to help others. Not right. to say to yourself, I will never have to pray again. Give us this day our daily right. bread. Right. That's a tough one. Heart of the Gospel. That's why it's the Heart of the Gospel. How the Beatitudes show us God's plan for happiness. Second book uh, from a year or two ago, Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. Uh, Is this a problem? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so at my parish, once a month, I'll have an open form question and answer for my parishioners and over in the parish hall. And so I just basically say, I'm here to answer any difficult questions you have about the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And the number one question that I'm asked 
by the people who attend that are, is some variation of, um, Father, I sent my child to 12 years of Catholic school. Why are they not Catholic today? And so I, I realized that was a big thing. And I was giving advice piecemeal. And eventually someone asked me to give a talk on that topic. And that's how this book came about. Um, someone who was an apologist for Catholic Answers was at that talk. And he right. said, Father, please put this into a book. Right. This is as much as I can right. tell you about right. how to keep your kids Catholic or help, to help them come back if they strayed. But this is basically a, a quick fix, right? You just read this book, everything's good. <laughs> or no. Well, that's, what I, <laughs> that's one of the things I said. The, the, the Catholic faith is no more a quick fix than your health is, mm -hmm. right? There's no such thing as a trick mm -hmm. for being healthy. Um, but nevertheless, there are, there are such things as tricks for not getting sick. Mm -hmm. There are a few easy things you can do to avoid sickness, right? In a similar way, there's a few easy things you can do to avoid pitfalls for your children losing the faith. But the number one thing that you have to realize, it goes back to the same thing that that book, Heart of the Gospel, refers to. Your children, if they leave the faith, it will be for one reason and one reason only, because they do not think being Catholic will help them be happy. Mm -hmm. So it really, everything in my book is about different ways of giving advice on how to connect in your children's mind their happiness with their practice of the Catholic faith. That's really what comes down to But is it important to define happiness? Because a lot of people are chasing happiness outside the faith because they think it's offered by the world. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We have this, I, I have a chapter entitled, Your Unfair Advantage Over Your Children. Mm -hmm. You know for a fact that God made their hearts. Right. And their hearts can never be happy without God and without the church that God himself founded. Huh? And so you think about the prodigal son. He thought he was going to find happiness in all that money and the loose women and the parties. And eventually, it disappointed him. Right. And eventually, those people, those children of yours who are looking for happiness in the world, They'll be disappointed right. by the world. I saw this chapter jumped out of me, and it, it jumps into what you just said. Don't let Catholic schools steal their faith. And, and it was something that uh, Bishop Sheen used to talk about. Oh, gosh. Uh, where he talked about send them to a public school where they, they fight for their faith <laughs> rather than having it taken away from them. But this is really personal. This just has to do with your dad. And what's yeah. surprising, not only that, but you're talking about something that was happening in the 1950s. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's true. Well, that's one of the reasons why um, this chapter really stuck with me. My father, when I was a child, was, was not practicing his faith. And the reason was because he went to Notre Dame in the 1950s. Right. And you might think Notre Dame in the 1950s was the flagship Catholic school. Right. My dad told me that the priests at Notre Dame taught him there's no devil, there's no hell, and the only thing you need to be saved is to be good to the poor. Mm -hmm. There's nothing Catholic about those things. And yet those were the things that all the priests at Notre Dame were teaching my dad in the 1950s. So if you think all the problems happened right. after Vatican II, well, right. no, they, they were starting well before that. And, um, and so my father, he really did have his faith taken from him mm -hmm. from some, a, a school that had the reputation of being the most Catholic school in the country. I don't know how things are at Notre Dame today. I hope they're better. But all I can say is that it wasn't yeah. good for my dad at that time. And there's a trickle-down right. effect. What happened in Catholic universities is now happening in Catholic high schools right. and elementary schools. Right. Fidelity to teaching in the church, you would say, was optional. The only thing that wasn't optional, you're supposed to be USC. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, that's important. <laughs> yes, we'll, apparently. We'll move on from always a Catholic to secrets from heaven, hidden treasures, faith in the parables, and the conversations of Jesus. Again, one of the things people you bring out here, but certainly everybody looks at, they say, why can't he just tell us straight up what he's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
You know, the parables are amazing because the, the depth of meaning. If mm -hmm. I sit here and I have an interview with you, mm -hmm. there's one level of meaning to this whole conversation. Those parables have level after level after level of meaning. And there's a, there's a father of the church by the name of Dionysius, the Areopagite. Uh, and Dionysius says that God hides the light of divine truth under several veils. And in that way, not only do we have to work harder to uncover the divine truth, but at the same time, the, the divine truth is proportioned to our simple human minds in a way that each layer, so to speak, is for someone who's more and more spiritually mature. It's a beautiful thing. Well, you say in here the point that the principle holds true that in approaching the written word of God, two people can read the same text and one can come away uh, a believer, the other one an unbeliever. The, the yeah. scriptures do not compel our faith. And that's also the reason why you need a magisterium, right? Because yes. otherwise everybody comes up, becomes their own pope. Right, that's right. I, I've often mentioned this. Protestants don't have a problem with the pope. The problem that Protestants have is they're not him. Right. Because every Protestant attributes to himself the same thing that a Catholic attributes to the Pope, namely mm -hmm. infallibility in interpreting Scripture in matters necessary for salvation. And that's all we think that St. That, uh, Peter said, the interpretation of Scripture is not a private matter, but it is something which is determined by the Holy Spirit. One of the things you, 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 uh, you, you talk about a couple of the uh, parables, one, the laborers who come late. Oh, yeah. I mean. That, that's the one that really gets a lot of people because they say, and you say, the perception of God is unfair to those who serve and is something the Christians have always struggled with. St. Mm -hmm. Teresa of Avila, you know, if this way you treat your friends, yes. the one you have so few. But it is that idea of trying to understand how is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Right. So I, I think about you know, Martha and Mary, you know, Martha's serving and she says, Lord, don't you care? I'm doing all the work and she's just sitting there, mm -hmm. you know, the sense of um, injustice. But here's how I, I approach that. Um, the first thing to recognize is, what is the usual daily wage that's a reward given to all these people? Mm -hmm. The usual daily wage is the very happiness of God, mm -hmm. beatitude in heaven. How can anyone say it's unfair that they had to work harder for that? That reward is infinitely beyond anything we could ever earn. For that very reason, those of us who have served the Lord for a long life will be so grateful in the life to come that we had the opportunity to at least suffer something, to at least sacrifice something, because every one of us will have a sense of immense unworthiness that we receive right. this. And we'll be grateful to God that He gave us the opportunity to suffer everything we could imagine, right. anything we could imagine, all the work we had right. to do. We'll say, thank you, Lord, I did something at least. Right because I am utterly unworthy of this reward. Well, with the are you envious, are you envious because I am generous kind yeah. of approach. I always thought too with the idea of the Gentiles coming later, you know, yes. rather than the children of Abraham oh, yeah. kind of a thing, later thing. Mm -hmm. and, and also the idea, I guess in one sense, some of the people who came earlier might have been people who had a more direct path to God. Yes. And the other people might have had these horrible lives yeah, that they went that. through before they got there. Right? Think about that. That's right. a little bit similar to the parable of the prodigal son. Right. Yeah. In the parable of the prodigal son, the, the older son is dealing with this problem too. He says to his father, look, I served you for all these years and you didn't give me even a young goat for my friends. But this son of yours who went off and spent his money on prostitutes, you, you slaughtered for him the fatted calf. Mm -hmm. And the father says, Son, I am with you always. That line is striking mm -hmm. because he's basically saying to his son, all this time you've been together with a father who loves you, 
wasn't that enough of a reward? And do you want a goat? A goat, you know? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, your brother has been away from the father he loves. Wasn't that enough of a punishment? Mm-hmm. Why do you think that you got the right. worst end okay. of the deal? Anyway. Right, no, it's a good point. The one that jumped out at me, I don't have time to get into the spiritual sense of the parable, Jesus is the prodigal son. Yeah, now, I didn't make that up. Okay. That's really found in some of the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, some Christian authors from before me. But when you read it, it's a dead hit. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this idea of you've got a son that says, and the son comes to the father and he says, give me your substance. And then it says he divided his life. It's an amazing thing in the Greek. It says beyond and usia, right? The mm-hmm. substance and the life. Mm-hmm. And then uh, about the son, it says that uh, he went uh, off and then uh, he, he resurrected, as the word it says, he resurrected and returned, ascended or returned to his father. You see that? Mm-hmm. So the whole thing can be understood as referring to Jesus coming into the world, right? And, and dying for us, so to speak, spending himself mm-hmm. on prostitutes and sinners which is what the Son of God did, His divine nature. He came, He emptied Himself and, and made Himself poor, right? And then He returned to the Father and received the robe, His resurrected robe there mm-hmm. huh, at the end, which is beautiful, just like there's a robe given to the prodigal son at the end. Everything is perfect, and um, it's beautiful how, how even the prodigal son, who looks at first like an anti-type of Christ, right. is in fact a type of Christ. Well, that's why it's secrets from heaven, because you need Father to explain that to you. Mm-hmm. His other book, Always a Catholic and Heart of the Gospel, all available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. Thanks so much for joining us here on Bookmarked, Father Sebastian Walsh. And again, these books all available through our catalog. I'm Doug Keck. Join us next time right here on Bookmark. We'll see you then.